But we do not want to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do, others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, through Jesus, God will bring him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written, or written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for the day to surprise you like a thief. For you are the ch all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Uh, well, if, if you want to start uh, an argument amongst a group of Christians, uh, one of the quickest ways to do that is to talk about the second coming. Uh, Christians often begin to, to fall out when they discuss uh, the end. Uh, we don't know when Jesus is going to return. And so often what we do as Christians is we focus on how that will happen, how he'll return. And this means that, that conflict is not the only thing that can happen. There can be confusion. Uh, there can be lots of concern. For some, the return of Jesus, the thought of his return is so overwhelming. Uh, for others, for other believers, the, the fear is that on that day, uh, you and I will be kind of found out, shown for the, the frauds that we always thought we were. And if we've ever had any of those emotions or thoughts, then this passage in 1 Thessalonians that uh, Ben read to us is really helpful. And uh, before we kind of step into the details, I want to uh, show you, I want you to notice with me how it's structured. Uh, for once, uh, the headings uh, in a, a Bible passage are truthful, are helpful. This passage, it really does break into two sections. So chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, and then chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. And as you look at them, maybe you can see how uh, each section ends. In verse 14 of chapter 4, Paul says, encourage one another with these words. And in chapter 5, verse 11, he says something very similar, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. Paul wants these Christians 
He wants us this morning to be encouraged by the thought of the end, the the return of Jesus. And he wants the return of Jesus to be something that gives us courage and helps us commit uh, to him afresh. And now Dom and I had uh, coffee not long ago and we were uh, talking together. Uh, This is the kind of geeky thing that uh, ministers do when they talk together. We talked about sermon headings. Okay, whether you should have sermon headings or not, whether they were a good idea or not, we were talking about that. Uh, We were critiquing the idea of having really long, intricate, alliterative uh, sermon headings. This morning, I'm just going to give you two words, okay, two words. And here's the first word, uh, verses 13 to 18. The first word is reunion, reunion. And as we think about the return of Jesus, it is going to be a reunion, And if you look at the opening verses of uh, chapter 4, verse 13 and following, it it, it seems that the believers Paul wrote to were anxious about something. And they were concerned uh, that some of their fellow Christians had died before Jesus had returned. This is quite hard for us to get our heads around uh, because there's been 2,000 years, of course, since Paul wrote these words. But it seems that many people in the early church thought that Jesus' return was imminent. They thought they would see it in their lifetime. In a sense, you and I, we could probably do with a bit of that attitude, couldn't we? But that kind of thinking had caused these believers complications. If you read Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, you see this. Paul had to encourage people who were idle. He had to tell them to work. Instead of kind of kicking back, waiting for Jesus to return. They were to to work with their hands. But here, the the concern is that friends or family who've who've died are lost. And Mark brought this out in his his prayer just a few moments ago. But notice just in passing what Paul doesn't say in verse 13. He doesn't say, we do not grieve. That is stoicism. That is kind of stiff upper lip spirituality. It's not Christianity. Paul says, we do not grieve as those without hope. And Jesus tells us, doesn't he, to weep with those who weep. Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus, even though he was a resurrection and a life. And I think this is so different to the way our our culture thinks. Do you know these words? Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there. I did not sleep. I am the thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints in snow. I am the sun on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. Those are the kind of words that are often said at funerals, aren't they? Uh, They sound poetic. And yet, what's the problem with words like that? Well, you can't hug rain, can you? And when loved ones die, we want them, don't we? And we want to hold them. We want to see their faces again. And Nicholas Walterstorff is a well-known Christian philosopher. He's written an amazingly beautiful book. It's, it's very short. It's just called Lament for a Son. And it's, I think it's the most profound and beautiful book I've ever read on the whole topic of suffering. 
And it's because he, in that book, he describes the experience of losing his son, Eric, in a climbing accident. Listen to him speak of that loss. When we gather now, there is always someone missing. His absence as present as our presence. His silence as loud as our speech. Still five children, but one always gone. It is the neverness that is so painful. Never again to be here with us, never to sit with us, never to travel with us, never to laugh with us. All the rest of our lives we must live without him. And only our death can stop the pain of his death. Friends, that is how Christians, mature Christians, often feel in the face of death. That is a real believer talking about immense loss. And the great promise in this section of Paul's letter is, is one of reunion. In verse 14, Paul says that the resurrection of Jesus has got implications for you and me. Because he died and rose, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep in him. In other words, Christians who have died are not beyond his reach. They're not lost. The Lord Jesus is that powerful. And one day, the one who said, Lazarus, come out, he will do the same for every believer. He will call out. He will call out to all who've died in faith. He'll call out to them by name. He'll call our names. And if we die before he returns, he will call us up and out of the clutches of death. The picture in these verses is of a beautiful reunion. Now, it's really important to say that these verses, uh, they don't tell us everything the Bible teaches about the, the end times, what we call eschatology. There's no, no mention here of the final judgment uh, or the new creation that Paul speak, uh, that's spoken about at the end of the Bible. Instead, what Paul wants to underline is the reunion aspect. Do you see the end of verse 17? Whom does Paul say that we will be with? We will be with our fellow believers. But he also says, doesn't he, we will always be with the Lord. In other words, when Jesus returns, we will never be separated from him. We will never be told to leave him. We will be reunited with people we've loved and lost in the Lord, spouses, friends, family, children. We will be with him forever. And what Paul wants to do for us this morning is he wants to reassure us. He wants to help us see that trouble believers, that none of Christ's sheep will ever be lost. Even if they've gone through the, the valley of the shadow of death already, Jesus still has his hands on those sheep. He still has a hold of them. Now, some people uh, have, have isolated verse 17 uh, lots of ink has been spilled about that verse. And they've said that what is being spoken about here is a rapture. What's been spoken about here is the idea of Christians leaving the world and kind of the rest of humanity being left behind for a season before Jesus kind of really returns. Uh, I'm going to frustrate some of you. And I am going to say that I am not actually convinced that is what Paul is speaking about here. 
Now, first, notice there's a real note of finality here. When he comes back, Jesus is back for good forever. We will always be with him. That's the language. Second, in the Bible, when clouds are mentioned, they, they signify God's presence. Think of Sinai. And in Ephesians 2, the devil is described as the prince of the power of the air. And so lots of people suggest that Paul uses this this language to show us that when Jesus returns, it will spell the end for all demonic powers. He will come to territory they thought they owned, and he will completely occupy it. Third thing, third reason why I don't think this is necessarily speaking about a rapture here is that we need to remember that as Christians... Our hope is, our future hope is physical. When Jesus returns, he will do so as the resurrected, the ascended Jesus. He won't won't come in some kind of disembodied spirit. And so if it is the case that we meet him in the air, if I can put it like this, we're not going to stay in the air forever. But there's there's one more reason I, I... I uh, want to talk about I find this, I think, the most helpful. It's what the word meet actually means. Now, maybe you're thinking, what on earth is he talking about? What does the word meet mean? Many of the commentators, they point out that uh, the word Paul uses in verse 17, it's the same kind of word used to describe what happened when a dignitary would come and arrive in a town. And as this dignitary got to the edge of a city, the kind of really important people, the prominent citizens, they they would go out to them and they would kind of accompany them on the last part of the journey. They They would come with that person to the place that they are visiting. It's the kind of thing that happens today, isn't it? And if King Charles comes to, I don't know, your school, who meets him at the gate? Not uh, the naughty first years, uh, the headmaster, doesn't he? Uh, The governors, the school governors, they meet him at the gate, they welcome him in. And so what's being described here is a kind of enthronement. When Jesus comes, when he returns, he will come as a king. And yet, friends, I hope you can see that the great encouragement here. Paul says, when Jesus returns, we will all be with him. We will be held close by him. Whether we die as Christians or whether we're those who are actually here when he returns this morning, we can have confidence. It is okay to picture people that you are going to see again. In this passage, Paul reminds us about Christ's return and he says it is a reunion, a reunion. But there's a second thing here. In in verses uh, 1 to 11 of chapter 5, Paul, here's our second word, Paul makes clear that the return of Jesus will mean a division. A division. If the first half of our passage is all about a a kind of coming together, a reunion, people being united again with Jesus, these verses 1 to 11, they, they, they show us the opposite, don't they? Uh, They remind us that when Jesus comes again, it will be a day of sudden 
separation, of parting. Now, let's think about the suddenness first. Look at the two illustrations that Paul uses to describe Jesus' return, the arrival of a baby and the arrival of a thief. Okay, the arrival of a baby and the arrival of a thief. And when a baby's born, um, there's lots of build-up, isn't there? There's kind of nine months of planning. There's time to get everything ready. Uh, when uh, we had our two children, you know, we had the hospital bag packed. Uh, we had a Moses basket already. First time around, I, we, well, we'd picked names. First time around, I'd even read a, a book, a part of a book about parenting in advance. Thought I knew what I was doing. And then the contractions start, don't they? And now the baby is actually coming. And you can't say, just wait a minute. Uh, you can't say, I've got, I've got a chapter left of that book. No, this is happening. This is happening now. And nothing prepares you for it, does it? Nothing prepares you for a thief. You know, a thief doesn't put a note through your letterbox and say, you know, while you're out on Saturday afternoon, I'm going to pop in. No, it's sudden. And when I was training as a teacher in, in London, I was uh, lodging uh, in a place in London called Ealing. Um, I remember waking up in the middle of the night and realizing that there was a man standing on the conservatory outside my bedroom window, and he was about to come in to the house. And it was absolutely terrifying. And it was especially terrifying when he did exactly the same thing two weeks later. Thieves come suddenly. And when Jesus comes, it will be like that. It will be unexpected. It will be unavoidable. Jesus uses this same language in Matthew 24. It will be sudden. And it will also mean separation. See, if you scan down the verses, I won't go into every single detail. Maybe you can notice, though, the opposites. In verse 4, Paul talks about darkness and light. In verse 6, he talks about being asleep or drunk and being sober or awake. In verse 8, he talks about wrath and salvation. And so Paul is making it really clear to us that when Jesus comes there really will be a great division. It will be either or. C.S. Lewis, uh, he captured it really well. He said this, he said, God will invade. But I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when he does. When that happens, it is the end of the world. When the author walks on to the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade. But this time it will be God without disguise. It will be something, Lewis writes, so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. And so if you're not someone who would call yourself a Christian this morning, the, the Bible is so clear. One day we will meet Jesus. One day we will have to give an account of our lives to him. One day we will see him. 
And becoming a Christian really is all about recognizing that ahead of time. It is asking him to swap places with us, asking him to take our judgment. And whoever you are, whatever you've done, you can ask him to do that for you. He will do it. But there's no hope unless you do that. This is very different to the way that uh, our culture today views the world, isn't it? We tend to think of progress cycles, uh, things getting better over time. And some cultures think differently instead of a kind of line. They think of uh, cycles, repeated patterns through history. But sometimes somebody is just honest enough to say all of this, it appears, is going to end one day. Bertrand Russell, listen to Uh, what he once wrote. He said this, all the labors of the age, all the devotion, all the inspiration, in a sense, all that is good and true and beautiful about human history is destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And then then to prove he was a really cheery character, he said, only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can we truly live? See, it's incredibly bleak, isn't it? But it's very honest. And yet it's so empty. Um, If the universe is just breaking down, if our ultimate end is we've come from nothing, we're going to nothing, then nothing we do now has any significance. But that is not what Christians believe. That is not what the Bible teaches. Now, as believers, we believe history is going somewhere. We believe there's going to be a final judgment. One day, Jesus, the risen Jesus, will return. And that fact has got implications for now, hasn't it? Look at the language Paul uses in verse 6 to the end. In view of this great division, how are we to live? How then should we live? Paul says we're to live sober lives. Paul says we're to live self-controlled lives. He wants us to stay awake. He wants us to, to, to live in light of what we know to be true. Paul is not saying, now you're a Christian, you, you really need to keep up God's standards. You need to do that in order to be saved. No, it's not that kind of Jesus cleaned the canvas And you're not to mess it up again. No, this morning, through God's word, Paul, God, is calling us to be what we are. Look at verse 5. We are are to be children of light, children of the day. It's really beautiful language. In Romans, Paul uses similar language. The night is nearly over, he says. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. But what does that look like? Well, if you look at verse 8, maybe you can see this uh, trio that Paul loves, doesn't he? Faith, hope, and love. Uh, Faith, hope, and love. Um, Look at what he connects uh, each of these things to. He connects it to armor. He connects it to uh, a breastplate. Connects it to a helmet. And I think what's that, what that's reminding us of, friends, this morning is that we need to remember as Christians, we are in the midst of a battle. 
Uh, the New Testament's really clear about this, isn't it? The last days, the end, in a sense, the end has already begun. Uh, the victory, the return of Jesus is absolutely certain. And yet you and I are called to fight as Christians. We're called to, to wage war against our sin. We live kind of in the overlap between the ages. But as we do that, as we fight, we, we're not to think we're fighting alone. We've got to remember that God himself fights with us. He fights for us. The language that Paul uses in verse 8 um, it has real echoes of Isaiah 59. I'm not going to go to that passage just now, but you can maybe look at it later. And in that chapter, God is the one who puts on righteousness as a breastplate, breastplate, the helmet of salvation on his head. He is the one who will fight for his people. You see, look at verse 9. I think sometimes as God's people, we hear of Christ's return and we're very afraid, aren't we? But what does Paul say? What does Paul say to Christians? What would Paul say to you this morning if you're a Christian? Paul would say, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian this morning, then wrath is not your destiny. You are not somehow going to be doomed on that day. No, this morning, Paul wants us to have assurance. See, look at verse 10. Jesus died for us. And why did he do that? So that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we die before his return or we're still alive when Jesus comes, we will be with him. And so, friends, this morning, this is a sobering passage, isn't it? And yet there's real encouragement for us. That's the application. Encourage one another. Remind one another of these things. I think so often in church life, um, I've not been a minister for very long, but I think so often in church life, encouragement in a church family, it's just what so many believers need, isn't it? Just encouragement, just encouragement to keep going. Uh, we need, don't we, brothers and sisters to come alongside us and say, don't lose heart. Uh, keep going for another week. Uh, keep fighting that sin that you're struggling with. Remember what's coming. That's what we need as Christians. And that's what God wants us to give one another. Encourage one another with these words. Build one another up just as you are doing as a church, as Grace Church. Well, let's have uh, just a moment to reflect, and then we'll pray together.